get ready for a delightful jaunt through the United Kingdom where queuing is an art form <laughs> and putting beans on toast is the national pastime. <laughs> uh, I'm Kale Shaw, and you're listening to another episode of Shaw Talk. For those of you that don't know, I spent the summer abroad in the United Kingdom, obviously. Did not pick up an accent, unfortunately. Um, That was quite terrible, actually. I probably offended some people, some of my professors. Uh, Shout out Michael Cox, Luca Tardelli, and uh, not Peter Trubowitz. Actually, not even Luca. I only had one professor that was actually, like, British from the United Kingdom. But, uh, yeah, so this is a, a episode of Shaw Talk that I've been sitting on for quite a while, actually. I've been back here for several months, and I just want to just talk about my trip. Maybe a little less politics, a little more fun, a little more travel-based. But, yeah, I mean, I spent some time living in a, in a country where that still has a monarch, and has no separation of church and state, but I had a great time, for the most part. So, I mean, I flew across the pond, very long flight, and, I mean, I don't recommend the flight. If you if you have the means to teleport to Europe, please do. It is, the flight is terrible, unless you can pay for first class, something like that, but... We flew into London. I landed at Heathrow Airport, and I, I stayed the night at, like, a student hostel for, for a weekend in uh, Kentish Town. Uh, while, while in Kentish Town, I actually hung out with uh, this kid. His name is Andrew. He goes to Texas A&M. Shout out. Um, when we post this on Instagram, I'll tag you. Actually, I'll tag everybody who uh, I, I reference in this. But, yeah, I mean, I hung out with Andrew. He was my roommate for that first couple of nights, and he's been to the United Kingdom before, so he showed me around um, uh, Kentish Town and, and more specifically Camden, which, uh, really cool experience actually. Camden is like the hub of punk in London. There's like people with like anarchist flags and like the Mohawks from the 80s. It's, it's crazy. But just spent a weekend in Kentish Town, walked around Camden, had fish and chips for the first time in London. I've had fish and chips before. I mean, that's like normal. But I had fish and chips for the first time in London, and we kind of just had like an orientation because I went with a program called API, and we had kind of a, a how to use the tube, how to navigate public transit, stuff like that. Living in London, it's pretty fun, um, very insightful. I'm glad that I was told that you have to um, that you have to hail a bus the same way you hail a taxi, kind of. Uh, if you're standing at a bus stop and you don't put your hand out and like. Basically tell the bus to stop. They won't stop. It'll just drive right past you. Um, then we had kind of like some some cool cultural experiences where we got to see Big Ben, all the other crazy stuff. But more specifically, we were all there for one reason. That reason was to attend school. University. But uh, so I, as mentioned before in a couple episodes of Policy Wonk, a couple episodes of Shaw Talk, social media, whatever. 
I attended the London School of Economics and Political Science, which for me was awesome. <laughs> it is a like top four, according to like USA Today, top four school in the world for for political science and um, and international relations. So awesome for me, you know. <laughs> I, I got that on on my CV now, but. The London School of Economics campus is, like, right in the heart of London. Like, it's half a block away from the Thames River. I walked after class every day to multiple, like, cultural sites in London. I walked to Buckingham Palace one day. The next day I walked to St. Paul's Cathedral, Tower Bridge. You, it's all within walking distance of campus. It's actually phenomenal. And the building behind me on the on the screen back here, that's the LSE Old Building, it's uh, beautiful, actually. Never went inside. I was in a center building, very different building. But it, because it's in the UK, um, center was spelled C-E-N-T-R-E. That's not how we spell it, obviously. But it was just quite odd, if you ask me. But yeah, I, I, I was able to attend the London School of Economics and Political Science, which was very eye-opening for me because... Obviously, I, I've been getting a political science and international relations education here in Cleveland. Um, but it was different seeing the, some of the similar topics, some of the same topics, and some new topics from a different perspective. Like, obviously, the perspective that I got in Cleveland is going to be different than the perspective Andrew gets in, tech, in, in uh, College Station. And that's going to be different than people who go to, like, UC Berkeley. But it's still going to be an American perspective. I got a, not just a United Kingdom perspective, but London. London is an international city. It's, it's very similar to New York, that it's huge, super multicultural. And I think out of all of the classes that I took, I don't think that there was a single British person in those classes. So I hung out with people who were from different parts of the United States. I hung out with people from Australia. I hung out with people from India from Sri Lanka, from Singapore, from Sweden, Norway, Belgium, Germany, France, and just from all over the world. And honestly, the perspectives were very interesting, especially because one of the classes that I took was the decline of the West and the crisis of the liberal international order, which focused a lot on American unipolarity and hegemony declining. Now, the focus of the class wasn't saying, okay, it is. It's here's all the information. Here's what people are saying. Here's what scholars are saying. Here's the numbers relating to like the rise of China, the rise of India, the rise of BRICS. And, and here's like basically saying, here's all the information. Do you think that the West is in decline and that the liberal international order is in crisis? And I learned <laughs> through this, through this class that I am a radical anti-declinist. I do not think that the United States is in decline. I think it has the capability to decline, but I feel like that just hinges on who wins the 2024 election. Um, I'll get into that eventually. But the other class that I took was America as a Global Power, FDR to Biden. And that was with Dr. Peter Trubowitz, who used to teach at UT, so he's a, he's a, he is a Texan. He's from the United States. And that class was about presidential grand strategy. We analyzed different presidents from, obviously, from FDR to Joe Biden. We analyzed their grand strategies 
we analyze their foreign policy efforts and and kind of the different like international circumstances that they were working through. And that class was also very eye-opening. Um, I learned quite a lot about the influence that China has had on American foreign policy since the 70s. But Peter Trubowitz, obviously he's an American, and I mean, I'm an American. The class is about American foreign policy, the American presidents. But even that class, I got multiple different perspectives on. There were a lot more Americans in that class, and honestly, some of them just kind of said that they were taking the class to, like, just for shits and gigs. So they weren't really into it. But the professor and and my TA, her name was uh, Sophie, she's from Australia, I got loads of different perspectives. And Peter Trubowitz, Dr. Trubowitz, he's able to kind of teach us about different perspectives because of how much time he spent abroad. He's lived in the UK for 13 years. And he's not bound by state requirements teaching kind of this America-centric outlook on the world. And obviously, I mean, there's nothing wrong with America-centric, like, learning things that are America-centric when you're in America. And honestly, uh, a lot of the things that I did learn that weren't focusing on America, they kind of just reflected things that I learned here. So I'm not saying that the entire education that I got for the last 20 years has been hyper-propagandized or anything like that. But I, I took that class, took my crisis of the of the liberal international order class. Honestly, two of my favorite classes I've ever taken, and it's not just because that they were in London, England. I just I absolutely love those classes, and honestly, the connections with people that I made, especially in my second class, the crisis of the West class, phenomenal. So. I'm going to get into a little more about each of the two classes and then a little more about my trip. So starting off with grand strategy, presidential grand strategy, America's a global power FDR to Biden. I've already said we analyzed different presidents, but more specifically, we talked about how we so we broke it down into three things. We talked about realpolitik, innenpolitik, and an individual perspective. Realpolitik is is a German word, but I'm not going to get too much into that because this is an international relations podcast. But from a from an international relations realist perspective, foreign policy is determined by international factors. The way that a president forms foreign policy directives and the way that a president moves forward and develops their grand strategy is solely dependent upon external factors. China, different wars going on in the world, economic rivals, like like I said, China, things like that. In politique is the opposite. Domestic politics shapes foreign policy. An example of that would be Obama. President Obama is not super considered a foreign policy president. And that's because that wasn't his job. His job, he was elected in 2008, coming right on the heels of the Great Recession, his job was to mitigate those effects and to help rebound the United States. And he did that, I would argue. So his foreign policy decisions were influenced by the domestic state of the country, that being the Great Recession, that being anti-war in Iraq sentiment, 
still coming off of the shock, the sadness, and the full recovery from the terror attacks in New York, D.C., and that, that the plane that went down in Shanksville on 9-11. And then from an individual perspective, we, t- we looked at different presidents whose hubris might have influenced their foreign policy, and honestly, that's probably the best way to look at it. It's more of a psychological effect. You have to take into consideration different things. Sociology, you have to take into consideration psychology. You have to take into consideration, honestly, just absolute embarrassment. Some presidents made decisions that they only made those decisions because if they didn't, they would have been absolutely humiliated. So that's that's kind of what we talked about. And we it was a very interesting class. And I now look at American foreign policy in a very different way. In some ways, it solidified my opinions. In some ways, it enforced it not enforced. In some ways, it changed my opinions. But moving on to the second class, which arguably I would ar- would arguably I would argue, <laughs> which arguably was a little more in depth and influential for me, especially when it comes to my opinions on foreign policy and and things like that. The crisis of the West and the decline of the liberal international order, or I said that wrong. The Decline of the West and the Crisis of the Liberal International Order. That class was taught by Luca Tardelli, but it also had guest lecturers, um, I think a handful, I think two or three guest lecturers. Um, but that class was phenomenal. We talked about the rise and fall of empires. We talked about what caused the decline and why some people, some IR scholars, some normal everyday people, think that the United States is in decline. And it was very, it was humbling to an extent, but it was also ego-boosting to an extent when Dr. Cox, Michael Cox, who's a very stereotypical British bulldog-type professor, British academic, when he would call the United States an empire, when he would say the American empire, one, it's very humbling in the sense that we are the hegemon. And people see us that way. And some people fear us because of that. Some people fear what the United States could do to their country because of that. And that's upsetting. Because that's not how I want our country to be seen. But at the same time, it's very ego-boosting. We are the hegemon. We should be leading the world. And that's the main takeaway I learned from this class, is what America's role in an ever-changing 21st century world is going to be. I don't think the United States is inclined. That's the conclusion that I drew from that class. I do think that other powers are on the rise. We looked at different powers like the EU. We looked at China. We looked at India, Russia, South Africa, Brazil, a.k.a. the rest of the BRICS. But we also looked at, not to be, not to be international relations offensive, but um, we looked at like the global south and how as a voting block in the United Nations, they, they are very incohesive. And that makes sense because you can't expect Namibia to have the same polit- politics and same policy preferences as Saudi Arabia or Mongolia. Even then, it's offensive to, call, to group all these countries together as the global south or the third world. It's, it's very offensive. But we learned about them as a group, as a voting block, and how they influenced IMF reforms in the United Nations. So when they all agree on something, very powerful, very influential group. But at the same time, 
constant disputes, not a very reliable voting bloc. But we also looked and talked about the Middle East as its own separate rising power. How there's a lack of cohesion in the Middle East, and because of that, that's going to hinder the region's rise to, to dominance again. So we broke it down into those different groups, those different countries, those different case studies, and we compared them to the rise and, and the fall of, of the United States, of Britain, of the West. And we kind of talked about different ways to change the liberal international order, some different IMF reforms, some UN Security Council reforms that would benefit the world. But circling back to what I was talking about before, the the new role of the United States in an ever-changing world in 2023 isn't to be the the gold like golden city on a hill or what the shining city on a hill or whatever Ronald Reagan said. It's not to be this dominant military policing power like George W. Bush and Obama made it. It's not supposed to be this this like world-changing world-leading, dominant, scary empire. The role of America in 2023 is to be essentially the team captain. Be the quarterback. Be the goalie. Do those things. Keep the teammates in check, but let them take risks. Help them succeed, because when Europe succeeds, we succeed. Help powers, growing economies, in other parts of the world succeed because when they succeed, we succeed, especially, especially in a world that is as globalized as this world is. Prop up developing countries. Don't make them suffer because they disagree with us politically, because they vote a little to the left of center. Don't punish them for that. Help them grow. Help them develop. That's our role in the world. But only if they need it and ask for it. We can't just go into Afghanistan and nation build for 20 years just to leave and let the Taliban take over. They didn't want us there in the first place. Now, if a country wants us there, we help because we have the ability to help. And that's our role in the world. Our role in the world is to defend countries from aggression by authoritarian rulers, a.k.a. Ukraine. That's our role in the world, helping marginalized people in other parts of the world, standing up for human rights, like Jimmy Carter said in Iran, standing up for human rights in other parts of the world. That's our role. We don't always have to use the stick, and we don't always have to use predatory IMF loans either. We have other ways of going about doing this, and those ways are soft power and hard power. Hard power, military. We're not going to use that. Soft power, on the other hand, is a number of things. People all over the world listen to American music. People come to America, they come to the United States because like 15 out of the top 20 universities in the world are in the United States. We have academic power that is unrivaled. Now, there are people that go to Beijing for school. But there are more people who come from Beijing to the United States for school than there are people who come from the United States to Beijing. Why is that? They come to the United States, get an education, and then they take that valuable American education home. That's awesome. 
That's American soft power. We have the money, we have the, the technology, and we have the advancements to help facilitate these research projects that people do when they come to school. That is American soft power. They watch our TV shows. They listen to our music. They laugh at our politics. Now, when I was in the United Kingdom, story time, um, I was at a pub with a, a couple friends. Shout out Colin, Kat, Sarah, Phoebe. Shout out those people. We were at a pub. We get up to leave, and Phoebe goes, Kayla, where's your bag? And I go, oh, shit. My bag was gone. So I pull out my phone. I use my iPhone to find my MacBook because my MacBook was in that laptop, and I track the guy down who took my bag. And he is sitting crisscross applesauce in one of those big red phone booths. <laughs> I confront him. I get everything back. Everything. Laptop. Everything. My passport copy. The only thing that he has still is my credit card and my debit card, which I canceled immediately. But because he was cornered in that booth and because I was quite pissed off, he felt very threatened and smashed a bottle of wine, full bottle of wine, unopened. So sad, actually. Um, and, and almost stabbed me and took off running. So that's the story. But eventually I, I called the police and uh, I told my friends to go home and be safe. Um, but when the police came and picked me up and took me home, helped me file out a report, they took me back to my, my flat, my apartment. And the entire way home, they're like, oh, you're American. And they were asking me questions about American politics. They were making fun of American politics. Um, they had a lot of interesting things to say about Ron DeSantis, actually. They don't like him. They think he's crazy. They also think Donald Trump is crazy. And, um, yeah, uh, they said that uh, American conservatives make a mockery of global conservatives. Um, I didn't say that. They said that. I thought it was quite funny. But <laughs> circling back. They do think that American politics is funny, but they think that America is funny. And and I feel like that is the extent of American soft power. We have that cultural, that economic, that that academic, those factors play into what America's role in the world is. And an image comes to mind. There's an image as to what leadership should be, and it's it's got this like there's a bunch of stick figures. There's one who the, the stick figure is standing on top of a box, and that box is being pulled by three or four other people, and the person on top of the box is giving orders. That's not leadership. The next image next to it is the same image, except the person is not standing on top of the box. They're at the front of the line pulling the rope as well. That's leadership. That's America's role in the world. They're the quarterback of the team. And eventually, who knows? They might be the tight end of the team. But right now, we're the quarterback of the team. It's our role to be a model for the world. And we can't do that until we get our shit together back home and our shit abroad together. We still do some questionable things. But we need to do that focusing on cooperation instead of bullying other countries into doing what we want them to do. Focus on cooperation. Develop relationships. And I'm going to argue that that's what we're doing with President Joe Biden. Now, I'm not going to go on any tangents about about Biden or anything like that. But he did recently just get back from Vietnam trying to normalize and expand American-Vietnamese relationships that have been kind of messed up since the Vietnam War. 
That's what we need to be doing. I agree with Joe Biden when he says that China's not the enemy, it's a competitor. That's what the world needs to be. Use things that won't hurt people, but can still compete with rival countries without causing harm. That's the role of America. That's what we need to be focusing on. But moving on to a little more cultural stuff. Now that the the class tangents are over, um, I got to see all of the cool shit in London. I got to see Big Ben. I got to see the big old Ferris wheel called the London Eye. I got to go up and down the Thames a couple times. I took a Thames boat cruise. I celebrated the 4th of July in London. Um, I swear to God, I visited every single pub on my block in um, in uh, Islington, which if you say Islington, which is how it's spelled, um, you would get probably crucified. So don't do that if you're ever in Islington. I got to see a ch- I got to go do a childhood dream of mine, which is go see Emirates Stadium where Arsenal FC plays. I saw the National COVID Memorial. I saw the Battle of Britain Memorial. I went to the British Museum and cracked a lot of British Museum jokes. I got a lot of fish and chips. I did everything except tea time. I did not get afternoon tea, and I don't know why I didn't do it. But every day I rode the double-decker bus to class, um, took the tube multiple places, and I took. I had a lot of train travel. Listen, I took a train from London to Hampton Court Palace, which is where Henry VIII lived. I took a train from London to... Stonehenge. I took a train from London to Hollyhead, uh, which is in Wales, uh, which is a different part of the trip I'll get to in a minute. Uh, A couple weekends, I think my third weekend into this trip, I hopped on a plane and I flew to Paris. And my time in Paris was was very short. Um, I would say that Paris was probably my least favorite place that I visited. Not that it was bad. It was just my least favorite place. And, you know, that might just be a little bit of bias because I didn't speak the language. I was by myself. Maybe it would be more fun if I had a group of people or, like, maybe if Victoria was there or my family or somebody. But I got to see all the cool things in Paris. I saw the Eiffel Tower. I saw the Louvre. I saw the Arc de Triomphe. I saw all that stuff. Um, I got a a decent dinner, uh, shared a glass of wine, shared a glass of wine, had a glass of wine. I shared it with myself. Um, but it was cool because I went to Paris during a time of civil strife, um, outside of my, um, outside of my Airbnb in Paris, uh, both nights that I was there, um, there were, there were people shooting fireworks, um, as a sign of protest and and it was all because of, of police brutality. So it was actually quite interesting. And I actually bought a, a copy of Le Monde from a newsstand. Um, that had all that stuff on the front page. Le Monde is the most popular newspaper in Paris, I would argue. And it was it was quite fun. It was quite nice. Um, I do have a little bit of a story there. I walk up to the guy. I'm wet. It was raining. I'm tired. Day's coming to an end. I walk up to the guy and I ask him if he speaks English in French because I learned a few phrases in French before I went. So I asked him if he speaks English. And he said yes. And I said, okay, thank you. What do you think is the most popular newspaper in Paris? And he said, probably Le Monde. So I went and I got one. And I go to check it out. Like I go, I go to cash out. And he says, that'll be five euro. 
And I go, are you shitting me? Five? And he said, <laughs> he said, you're right, you're right, you're right, four. And I was like, four? It says one euro on the paper. So he, he ends up selling it to me for the normal price. Actually, I think it was more a euro 50, but um, I still, still five? I mean, it's not a lot, but I was very limited on my, my euros. <laughs> I only planned for the weekend. But yeah, that that was my little story. He tried to get me because I wasn't from Paris, from France. Um, but I flew back. Um, quite quite fun. I love the metro system um, in Paris and in and in London. And then my next trip um, outside of London was up north. I took a bus, eight hour bus overnight to um, Edinburgh, Scotland. Beautiful. Love the city. It is it, it, the best way to describe it is it's like Harry Potter, which I mean most of the castle scenes in Harry Potter were filmed in Scotland, um, but I, you know in Edinburgh it was awesome. It was awesome. Loved it. I had haggis. I had a haggis burger. I listened to a lot of bagpipes, and and for those of you who don't know, my family is very Scottish. We are very proud of the fact that we're Scottish. Um, I have a kilt. Uh, we really lean into that aspect of our family history. I, I have a tattoo on my leg that is is Scottish. Um, but that being said, I took a train from Edinburgh even further north to Inverness, which is where my family actually comes from. And that was – I had such a good time. I think that my mental health on that trip was the best when I was in Inverness. Um, it was just quite fun. It was very fun being in Inverness. Um, I also had haggis. I had scotch. I stayed at a hostel, I believe. Or no, I stayed at a bed and breakfast in Inverness. Um, did a lot of walking. I cycled through the highlands, which was awesome. I spent several hours just biking. Um, I went to uh, Dariot. I think it's called, which is, there's a cemetery there that has a lot of shawls in the in the cemetery. Um, I took a bike to Culloden to learn some history about the Battle of Culloden. Um, and then I ended up flying back from Inverness to London. And, you know, I celebrated the 4th of July. And I've already said this, but I want to tell the story real quick. We dressed up. We were wearing 4th of July stuff. I had a blue suit on with an American flag t-shirt, sunglasses, and we found this pub in London right where the Mayflower uh, debarked, disembarked for the first part of its trip from London to Cornwall, England. And the name of the pub was the Mayflower. And there's a couple American flags, a couple Canadian flags, Mexican flags, you know, the Americas. Um, but specifically, the focus was the United States. And I had some like American beer. I had a burger. It was the best burger I had on the trip. And we just... We were there were a bunch of Americans, about six or seven of us, and we celebrated the Fourth of July at the Mayflower Pub. Pretty fun, actually. Uh, my next section of the trip, and my last trip to uh, anywhere outside of London, was to Dublin, Ireland, which I'm going to say is one of my favorite cities in the world. I took a train from London to Hollyhead, Wales, and then from Hollyhead, Wales, I took a ferry. Which is being generous, which is the opposite of generous, actually. Um, calling it a ferry is kind of disrespectful. It was basically a cruise ship. Um, 
three hours to Dublin, Ireland. And I woke up in the port of Dublin. And I spent I spent the weekend there. I walked up and down the River Leafy. I stopped at multiple pubs. I went to the Guinness uh, factory. I saw all the different Irish Revolution sites, like the General Post Office. I stayed in a hostel where I definitely had somebody touch my feet. Um, but I visit. I mean, I visited Grafton Street. I visited uh, Mulligan's Pub, which shout out Mulligan's Pub. Honestly, I'm going to put a link to Mulligan's Pub on our social media as soon as possible. Actually, I had I had the privilege of enjoying a pint of Guinness at Mulligan's Pub in Dublin, Ireland. Best best atmosphere. It was awesome. It was packed, but it was with it was packed with people who were happy to see you. You know, it was like the show Cheers. There were people who come there all the time because the bartenders knew their names. It was awesome. And a plus for me as an American and as a, as a Democrat, it was uh, JFK's favorite pub in London as well. Um, but, you know, I, at some point I had to leave, and the last, like, week and a half of my trip was focusing on school, writing some papers, and hanging out with the people that I met in London. So I just want to give a, a brief rundown, a brief shout-out to as many people as I can who hung, I hung out with because I still stay in touch with most of them. Um, I actually am going to start with Phoebe. I text Phoebe probably every day. And Phoebe's from Australia, so she lives in Sydney. And the time difference is insane. So I only get to talk to Phoebe right when I wake up and right before I go to bed. So right before I go to bed, she's just waking up. And right before I wake up, or right around when I wake up, she's about to go to bed. So I still talk to her. Uh, Andrea, also from Australia, I still communicate with her. Not nearly as much as I should. So Andrea, if you're listening or if you see this, text me. Um, but, you know, I'm going to go <laughs> to the store and buy some Tim Tams, which were uh, these like chocolate biscuits, Australian chocolate biscuits, something like that. They were so good. Um, so shout out to my Aussies, my favorite Aussies. Um, Nils, Nils is from Sweden. Um, he was an excellent guy. He's so funny, arguably one of the smartest people I've ever met. He's very logical, really fun to be around. And, you know, if it wasn't for Nils, I probably would not have lost as much weight on that trip because Nils made me walk everywhere. He judged me for taking the bus, (laughs) but I got to hang out with Nils every day. He made sure that, uh, my studying was good. He was such a good classmate. Our, our discussions and our debates and his debates with my friend Jake, who I'll get to in a second, were were kind of ground-shaking, Clash of the Titans type thing. Um, but, you know, I just brought up Jake. Let's talk about Jake. Jake is also from uh, Texas. He goes he, He's from Dallas, but he goes to Arizona State University. Super smart guy. One of the smartest I've ever met. You know, honestly, a lot of the people I met on this trip are some of the smartest people I've ever met. And and Jake, he's super funny. Jake's sense of humor is great. Um, I was I learned quite a bit of, from Jake about philosophy, about the way people think, and and the way Jake sees politics. Kind of was very insightful. And and Jake is paired with Andrew. Jake and Andrew were actually friends before they came to the trip. So Andrew, shout out. Um, Andrew's the the student from Texas A and M. He grew up in Dallas. 
Um, learned a lot from him. I actually texted both Andrew and Jake yesterday uh, about the upcoming Senate election in Texas. Um, but yeah, you know, Andrew was there for me uh, almost every day. Got to hang out with him. I, you know, I grabbed a beer after class with Jake and Andrew every day. Uh, eventually, Nils started coming with, and then Phoebe started coming with. But Andrew and Jake, they're the real ones. <laughs> uh, let's stick with America. Let's talk about Colin real quick. Colin goes to Loyola, who is actually, as, as at the time of recording, I believe he's in Rome. Um, but he goes to Loyola. He's cool, super cool. His family moved to Cleveland, so shout out Colin's family. Uh, I got to hung out with Colin. I still talk to Colin. Still send snaps back and forth. Same with Alex. Alex, I still talk to her. She's great. She goes to some school in New Hampshire. Alex, if you're hearing this, I'm sorry. Um, but <laughs> she's really cool. Um, now, anytime that I hear the saying, fuck it, we ball, I think of her because she said that one time, and uh, it was really funny. It stuck with me. Um, Macy. Macy goes to Bama, Roll Tide. Uh, not really. I hate your school. Um, but she, she's been all over the, the, the country. She hates Ohio. So we get into some discussions, but uh, she's really cool. Uh, shout out to Kat, who's from uh, Kansas originally, but she goes to UC Berkeley. Uh, she's the one that recommended that we go to Florence Pugh's favorite bar in, in London. And I spent $13 on a drink and we left. The drink was okay. I drank all of it, but it was $13. Never going back. So Florence, you have great taste. I don't have your budget. Um, we have, who else do we have? Macy, Alex, Colin, Andrew, Jake, Nils. I mean, we have, we have like Eric from Norway. We have, I mean, there's all sorts of people. And if I missed anybody, I'm sorry, but it was just such a blast with everybody and I feel like those connections with people are things that are going to stick with me for for a very long time so I hope I stay in touch with most of you and I hope that you guys use the knowledge that you got from the London School of Economics just as much as I do but all that being said I I'm all done with my little recollection you know at, at the end of the day this was a little longer episode for Shaw Talk if nobody listens to it I don't care I'm very happy with my trip. I'm happy with the connections that I made. I'm happy with what I learned. And I'm happy with who I am coming home from that trip. Um, arguably, that's that's the most important thing that uh, that I got out of that trip is, is the person who I am now. So shout out LSE. I hope to return someday. Um, but yeah, I mean, that's all I have for this uh very long, very boring, very personal episode of, uh, of of Shaw Talks Politics, but hopefully, hopefully I'm back. Hopefully I'm I'm back and cranking out an episode every couple of weeks. I want to start focusing on foreign policy issues with this podcast. Maybe some Ohio things, some things that I can talk about for a half an hour that maybe we shouldn't talk about on the on Policy Wonk, just to save time, but. I'm hoping I'm going to get some more guests. I'm eyeballing Phoebe to talk about an upcoming referendum in Australia regarding indigenous peoples. I, I'm looking at a lot of different things. So stay tuned, and I hope you enjoyed this episode of Shaw Talks Politics. Oh, wow.